Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Three words and one picture sum up the new scene in Washington and the sudden relief from a two-year fixation on President you-know-who. The pictures of the so-called Sunrise Movement siege of Nancy Pelosi's office from last November and of the rapturous, insurgent congressperson from the Bronx, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, sweeping up that moment and putting its three little words, Green New Deal, at the top of the agenda that's evolving in Washington. It's as slippery a promise as universal health care, but here is our first crack at what it could mean. A resurrection of spirit, perhaps, at the bold Rooseveltian scale. A reset in relations with work and among workers, which Roosevelt's New Deal surely was. We'll see. Does it mean a war for clean, renewable energy against the embedded power of fossil fuels? Almost unavoidably. Is it a system upgrade for the power grid and the whole economy? About time, you might say, but can it be done? Bill McKibben is our go-to guide in the green thicket just because he's had his heart broken over and over again in the cause of a sane relation with nature. He's covered the wildfires and the melting icebergs. He's defined the outer limits on air pollution and seen them broken. He went to jail to stop the Keystone Pipeline and won around there for a while. He's never lost his direction and never stopped learning. Bill McKibben spoke to us this week from the Green Mountain State and Middlebury College, where he teaches. Look, Chris, it's a moment right now. We've known about climate change for 30 years, and for 30 years, the fossil fuel industry has done a pretty good job of tamping down, lying about, dissembling, keeping us from doing very much. That 30 years is up. It's up because the climate is no longer a theoretical future threat. It's now something that's taking mm. its toll daily, weekly, hourly, on every continent and with all kinds right. of people. It's up because the price of a solar panel has fallen 90% in the last decade, so the possibility of moving rapidly off fossil fuel is now very real. And the moment is up because, you know, the movement that's developed over the last decade has birthed enough people, enough ideas, enough momentum that politicians are starting to seize the moment. The great example of this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What she did was twofold. One, when young people at the Sunrise Movement took over Nancy Pelosi's office in December, she went and joined them. That's a remarkable breach of congressional protocol, and not the thing you would expect from a freshman congresswoman, but she did it with brio and style and joy, and managed to transform the debate almost overnight. Suddenly, people who'd spent decades explaining that we would need to move at tiny little incremental steps uh, were beginning to talk about the idea of change on a scale that we haven't really seen since LBJ or FDR. This time, the three initial queen of this work was AOC. And I think now that the idea is out there, 
there's probably no bringing it back. What she's talking about in the Sunrise Movement people are talking about, and really more and more and more people are talking about, is a program to deal with climate change that's actually commensurate with the scale of the problem. That is to say, that begins not with the question, what is politically realistic, but begins with the question of what is actually required, and then answers with the politics that you would need to reach that goal. What's actually required, as they point out, is to get us off fossil fuels within the next 10 or 15 years. That's an unbelievably hard task. To make it happen, we would need large, large measures, like, for instance, the federal jobs guarantee that Ocasio-Cortez puts forward in her draft legislation. AOC, FDR, we're invoking one of the giant leaders of this country from the beginning. The New Deal involved all sorts of things, including Social Security, massive public works, the TVA, rural electrification, Works Progress Administration. It was gigantic. Imagine somebody of Roosevelt's daring and courage and political imagination looking at the climate warning. You know your New Deal history. Um, You know that they actually tried all kinds of different things, many of which failed and were quickly abandoned and moved on to new programs, new agencies, new ideas. The only thing that they all had in common was that they were all big. That is to say, they knew that they had a huge problem and they were going to have to have a series of huge answers to deal with it. I think that's what this Green New Deal, at its best, is about. When Ocasio-Cortez says the federal government will give a job to anyone who wants one, putting in solar panels, installing insulation, whatever else. That's how you would get the manpower necessary in order to accomplish the not insignificant task of providing enough solar panels, enough windmills to affect this extraordinary transition. Hmm. The numbers are very large. They're the equivalent of what we had to do at the beginning of World War II and in a similarly compressed time period. And it would mean diverting an awful lot of the industrial capacity of this country and of the whole world in this same direction. But that's simply what's required. So the fact that someone's come up with a plan to do it and a plan that has lots of other good results, like beginning to reduce some of the inequality that we see around us, is a very smart step. The other thing that makes it common cause with the old New Deal and with FDR is the spirit of joy with which Ocasio-Cortez has put it forward. Mm. I went back yesterday and looked at the, the newsreel clip of FDR talking about his little dog, Fala, and it's not far removed from the wink that Ocasio-Cortez gave while she danced down the hallways of Congress <laughs> last week. These guys knew that winning the public battle was the key to winning the political battle, and they knew how to do it. Roosevelt had a break in that he had a radical labor movement, almost radical labor movement, and a whole lot of people hungry, desperate for work. <laughs> What's the modern equivalent here? Well... Last fall, large parts of California burned down. Two months before that, the Carolinas saw the greatest rainstorm in the history of the East Coast, Mm. flooding out large numbers of people. Eight months before that, Houston, Texas saw the greatest rainstorm in American history, five feet of water falling on parts of Houston. It's not like these things are going to go away. They're going to intensify. We're now talking quite 
straightforwardly about the fact that we're probably going to lose major cities like Miami in the course of the coming decades. Yeah, if the evacuation of Malibu, California is not a warning to wealth specifically, what will be? Absolutely. And it clearly changed people's visceral understanding of where we are with climate change. I mean, I really think what we're seeing is pretty akin to what has happened with Medicare for all and a $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, Senator Sanders managed to take those things from being kind of wild ideas to being absolutely mandatory if you're a serious Democrat. And now Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez are doing the same thing with this Green New Deal. Bill McKibben, there's something suspicious to me about this wonderful phrase, Green New Deal. And it's precisely because when it was launched 2007, it sounded much more like a project to save capitalism than to save the planet, save the environment. I mean, there's dozens of people who have talked about Green New Deals and things over time and in different places and whatever. And, but this is the first time that the phrase really amounts to anything. So I wouldn't worry much about its history. I don't think Tom Friedman or anyone else is going to be able to uh, claim much of this one. But so what is going to make it real? Granting that there's going to be a whole lot of experimentation, what makes it you know worth a test? The problem, of course, is not coming up with the ideas most of them are out there in one form or another and in one kind of pilot program or test project or whatever or another and people are busily compiling them the problem's always going to be political the oil industry is not going to go away or give up they've made it clear that they're willing to do what it takes to extend their business model another 10 or 20 years even at the cost of breaking the planet and which probably will be the cost they're in a powerful position, too. They've got the Koch brothers, the biggest political players in the country, in the world, really, and our biggest oil and gas barons. And so far, they've been able to win these political fights. But the ground is going to get tougher for them, and it's going to get steadily tougher in no small measure because Mother Nature is going to keep hitting us upside the head. But what's the mark of real authenticity in a new Green Deal? Scale. Think of all the hoodwinking we went through on universal health care, and in the end, yeah. we extended a big break for the insurance industry. So, so the ways to tell if something is real are, is it committed to solid time frames that work with the physics to getting us off fossil fuel? Climate change, if we don't solve it soon, we'll never solve it. So the thing to keep your eye on when you're looking for authenticity is, is this happening speedily and at scale? The other possibility is that, scared finally by things like the Green New Deal, the oil industry will start the negotiation process finally. What they'd like to see is a very modest price on carbon, uh, one that would, in essence, extend their business model a couple more decades down the road. And that'll be, I assume, their counteroffer here. That's why it's good that people are putting forward such a bold program, so unlike, say, what the Democrats put forward a decade ago, this blinkered, loophole-ridden cap-and-trade scheme that collapsed of its own weight before it could ever get through Congress. Hmm. Speak from a long history now, Bill, 30-plus years, doing everything in the environmental world, including getting arrested and doing time or direct action and slogans and 350 and, and politics. What have you learned? The most important thing one's learned is the extraordinary power of the fossil fuel industry and their extraordinary willingness to try and hold off change. And that's been the 
the problem from the beginning and continues to be the problem. But in the face of that, one builds movements, and these movements have gotten steadily bigger and stronger. The only question is whether we can make change in time or not. But I write and work not out of a sense of despair, but out of a sense of engagement. One doesn't need to offer false hope to make it clear that there's still much to be done. Bill McKibben, you're our idea of the heroic citizen, not to mention journalist. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Good to talk to you as always. Coming up, the science historian who wrote the book on fossil fuel power, not just in our government, but in our mind space. This is Open Source. Naomi Oreskes, now in the Harvard History Department, has been writing about climate change almost as long as Bill McKibben. A decade ago, she co-authored the book that became the movie Merchants of Doubt, how a handful of scientists obscured the truth on issues from tobacco smoke to global warming. Welcome back, Naomi Oreskes. How does Green New Deal sound to you? Well, it sounds great in a lot of ways. As Bill just said very well, what's really important about this idea is the scale, that it's a big idea that invokes big changes and successful changes. It invokes the idea that our nation has faced crises of this scale in the past, and we have rallied, and in the case of the Great Depression, we fixed it. Our economy was in a practical free fall uh, when FDR came into office, and through the innovations of the New Deal, uh, he remedied that. So I think the scale of it, the ambition of it, and the sense of success is is really important and really good. My question is, given the, the, what you revealed in Merchants of Doubt, are we civilians ready to hear the Green New Deal debate? Are we up to weighing the arguments and the no. propaganda? <laughs> no, and that's the downside. So the downside of this is that in my experience, most people alive today have no memory, no knowledge, no awareness of how hard American industry fought against the New Deal and the opposition that was brought to bear against FDR and all of his lieutenants. So, Remind us. What, well, he he so welcomed when, their hatred, he said, and he won. He said he welcomed their hatred. I know, and I've thought about FDR. Whenever I get hate mail, I think about FDR. <laughs> uh, he said he would be judged by his enemies. So I think he was right about that, but it's but it's important for us to remember, many of his enemies were the captains of American industry. They were General Motors. They were Alfred Sloan. They were people that many people in business and industry today think of as heroes of American history. Pierre Mm. Dupont, you know, these were great names in American industry and business. They accused FDR of staging government takeover of the economy and therefore of being socialistic, of being communistic, of being un-American, Uh, that this was a threat to the American way of life, that this was a threat to American liberty. And we can be sure that if Democrats do go forward pushing the Green New Deal idea, that all of those same arguments will be brought to bear again. Now, that doesn't mean those arguments have to win. They didn't Mm. win in 1933. But I think it means that anyone who is going to support the Green New Deal has to be prepared for those arguments and has to think about what the compelling answer is to the American people. We're, we're, we're so conditioned now, as you say, we've all lived all our lives in this tiny speck of human history called the age of, of petroleum. Uh, I remember those quarter-page mobile ads 
that seemed to be in the New York Times every day. They sponsored Masterpiece Theater, and they used slogans like, a nation that runs on oil can't afford to run low. That was Herb Schmertz, yeah, a great Kennedy PR yeah. dude. Um, how do we deprogram ourselves? And I mean it seriously, Naomi. Well, it's very difficult, and that's why this is not this is not going to be an easy fight. And nobody should think that just because we now have a good slogan or a good idea or because we can invoke FDR that somehow it's all going to fall into place. I think it's clear that that's not the case. I think, as Bill McKibben just said, we can expect the fossil fuel industry to continue fighting. I think that they know that they're in a fight for survival, and they may go to their graves fighting, um, mm. and they may do a lot of damage, and they may pull us down. And so I think being mindful of that, being aware, and being aware that they will continue to promote disinformation, they will accuse us of being communist, they will accuse us of being anti-American, they will accuse us of hating the American way of life. And so we have to be prepared to say, no, this is not about hating the American way of life. This is about the only potential way we actually have to preserve it. Help us get our ears tuned as well as our dukes up. I'm thinking of you know, the Guardian in England ran a very brave, long campaign uh, against the whole Coke premise. It, the, their slogan was, leave it in the ground. If we burn all the coal and the oil, we destroy the planet forever. Uh, the Coke line won. And and the Guardian lost after fashion. Uh, well, you, you know, prepare us. Yet, pre- right. I mean, I, I think part of the challenge we have, and again, this for me would be the limits of the Green New Deal metaphor, So one of the things that was true in 1932 was that the American people recognized that the American economy was in a state of crisis. Uh, 25% of the American people were unemployed. Probably the same number again were were underemployed. Businesses were collapsing. Banks were failing. People had lost their savings. Uh, Stockbrokers were committing suicide. I mean, the evidence of collapse was everywhere, and no one could deny that there was a crisis. The only question was what to do about it. What The difference now, I think, is that we still have a lot of people in the United States who are still in denial about the fact that we have a crisis. And I think it's changing. I think Bill is right that this year, with the catastrophic fires in California, with the mind-boggling rainfall events associated with the hurricanes, the degree of damage, the scale of damage, the proximity of the damage, all of these things, I think, did open the eyes of many people to the fact that climate change is no longer a prediction. It's no longer something in the future, but it's here and it's now and it's hurting the American people. And the polls show that there has been a very significant change. But nevertheless, uh, the President of the United States is still in denial. His chief lieutenants are still in denial. And there's a kind of deafening silence coming from most of American industry, because I think we know that most of the leaders of American industry know that climate change is real, and yet very few of them have stepped forward to say that it's real and it is a crisis and we need to address it. What's the lesson of what you'd have to say is a kind of general wake-up on cigarettes and cancer, Naomi? Mm. Yes. Well, of course, I've written a lot about that. Um, but both well, the, you know, the, the, the corporate uh, deception and the somehow shaking it off. Yeah, well, I think that is a good example of the combined power of science and political movements, because we got tobacco control in this country through both. Without the science, we would not have known that tobacco use was so dangerous, so deadly. 
but the science alone was not enough. It also required political movements, legal action, uh, grassroots movements to ban smoking in public places, things like that. So I think we have the same situation with climate change. Mm. The science is crucial, remains crucial for explaining to people what is happening and how we know that all of this is related to fossil fuel use. That message continues to be essential, but it has to be linked, as Bill said, to political mobilization, to political education, and to political action. And drama. We're not deprogrammed yet. Stand by, Naomi Oreskes. I want to introduce Dan Schrag, who was trained as a geologist. He works the intersection of science and politics. He was a member of President Obama's Council of Advisors for Science and Technology. Nowadays, he runs the science and public policy program at Harvard's Kennedy School. Quick question, Dan Schrag. Is it possible that Barack Obama missed his cue on the environment? I I think many people debate that whether or not the President Obama had. Did an they debate it at the time? Yes. I mean, absolutely. what were you guys doing to build an awareness? It, it was a time of, shall we say, environmentalism light in in Obama world. Um, well, I'll tell you. I think first of all, if you go back to two thousand nine, right at the inauguration. Energy and environment were on the top of the agenda on the uh, on the discussion of the stimulus, the massive government stimulus. Um, but a few things, and, and remember, Van Jones was talking about green jobs. Right. He got he got pushed aside, but for some for some attacks on him. But basically, there was that discussion out there. Um, it wasn't mm. the dominant thing. And I think in many ways, I do think there may have been an opportunity missed that that if there was an opportunity for a, a Green New Deal, the huge stimulus package and the financial scare of 2009, 2008, 2009 uh, was an incredible opportunity to put this country to work towards green energy. And yet, I think there are a few things you have to remember. First of all, 10 years ago in 2009, the cost of solar panels, the cost of wind was much, much higher, factor of several, than it is today. Um, Bill says maybe Bill McKibben was saying, what, five, five He was saying times 10 cheaper, times. Whatever. It, and it's, still The number is more like four or five, but it doesn't matter. It was much, much more expensive. It looked like an economic uh, loser. Um, it didn't look economically feasible. What we were talking about was things like advanced nuclear and carbon capture and storage, because remember at the time, natural gas prices were 10 or $12. The, the shale gas boom hadn't really hit full stride yet. And so the energy world has completely changed in the last decade with cheap natural gas prices, with very cheap wind and solar. And so the feasibility of the kind of Green New Deal that Ocasio-Cortez is talking about, you, you can actually imagine it today in a way that 10 years ago was much more difficult. I think um, I, I also think there was another factor, which is the economists who were kind of um, in charge of that financial crisis and the response to it. Larry Summers, some of the people in the Treasury Department, mm -hmm. um, I think they were really scared. I think a lot of them really thought there was a serious chance that our whole economy could collapse. And and I, didn't, don't, I, I think for them, pinning uh, the, the economic recovery and the big investment of the stimulus to a separate political agenda was not something they wanted to do. I think that may have had something to do with this. I'm still wondering how we move so swiftly from sort of environmentalism, environmentalism light or whatever, not powerful engagement. The Paris standards were not really impressive in the end to this suddenly uh, 
a rampantly, ragingly, aggressively anti-science, anti-environment stance that we take in the world now. How did this happen? Well, you know, when Trump was elected, I sort of hopefully thought, well, maybe it's uh, one step back and someday two steps forward. Maybe that's what we're seeing right now. I've mm. got to say, I think the Green New Deal has another element that neither Bill nor Naomi mentioned that is interesting to me, which is Go that it. it's not just about climate change. Actually, it, if Ocasio-Cortez were just talking about climate change, I don't think she would have gotten the reception. The Green New Deal, you know, remember, this is, this is not World War II war mobilization, spending 35 percent of our GDP to fight World War II. The New Deal was, you know, things like the WPA, putting people to work right. in all sorts of ways, building paths and national parks and all sorts of things. It's that same idea, but doing it for a different purpose, which is green energy. And to me, the interesting aspect of this is harnessing the green energy agenda with other agendas, which include putting people to work. It includes giving people a re reasonable wage. It includes giving them benefits like health care. Right. And it's, it's somehow what Ocasio-Cortez seems to have been able to do is make those multiple political agendas into one and build an alliance that wasn't there. The people who cared about health care in the Obama administration were really fighting the people who cared about climate change for primacy over who was going to get to go first. Um, here, it's fascinating they managed the to put them together. The old New Deal was was good for people, regular people, for my parents. Um, the environmental cleanup has always been come with a price. It's not going to be good for you. It's going to hurt a while. It's going to maybe hurt for a exactly. long while. Exactly. And it's I think that's the genius of what Ocasio-Cortez did. It's really mixing the climate agenda with several other lines of political agendas that each have – large numbers of supporters and making it a win-win for everyone. But the response to her also says to me that th this hunger for clarity on a street corner uh, and candor about the pickle we're in, and she, she gives it very, very, I don't know, kind of warmly, humanly, um, had to be there all along. I mean, I think I think it has been there all along. I think, I but think that's what I mean about what maybe our wonderful Barack Obama missed. I, I I think the idea of his focus when he and Van Jones were talking about green jobs, I think what they were trying to say was we're not going to talk about climate change. We're going to talk about green jobs because that's what appeals to people politically. I think they were afraid of talking about climate change directly. I but don't. How know. did he leave those regulations? As he did indeed leave the Iran nuclear deal so vulnerable to just executive, you know, blow it away? Well, I think you have to remember he worked really hard in the first two years to get the Waxman-Markey bill through the Senate, and the votes just weren't there. Um, and then he had a Republican Congress for the rest of his time. So everything he did in the last six years was through executive order. Many of the most important things he did was through executive order because he had no choice. He had a Congress that was essentially against anything he was for. And so I think you have to um, – it's not that he left things vulnerable to executive action that would unwield it. It was that the only action he was able to do was through executive action. Naomi Riskies, I wonder uh, how sure is this bond between pieces of – the Green New Deal, between the industrial makeover, the climate change technical part in a certain sense, but the also the 
social justice, equality, jobs for all promise? Well, nothing's sure about it because right now this is just an idea. And I think while there's a lot of energy that behind it right now, and certainly, as people have already said, Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez has brought a kind of youthful energy into it, which I think is very valuable and important. Um, you know, there are still huge numbers of questions about what this would really be in practice. And, you know, Chris, when you and I were talking earlier, I mentioned that, you know, one of the issues for me is that for this to succeed, it's not going to be enough just to rally Democrats. The Green New Deal idea is great for rallying Democrats because it invokes the greatest Democrat of the 20th century, FDR, one of the most successful presidents in the history of the United States. So for Democrats, that's great. It's a rallying point. But what about everybody else? What about the independents? And what about the Republicans? What about even all those Republicans out there who we know must know that climate change is real, but mm. they're afraid to say so in public because they're so backed into a corner? Um, I think there's real questions about how we get those people on board and how far we integrate climate change with all these other issues. And that's where it starts getting really complicated. So that's why I've sometimes said my preferred metaphor is actually the Green Apollo Project, hmm. because that's a little bit more bipartisan. And that was something that was supported by both Democratic and Republican presidents and Congress. Um, but, you know, we could argue about the metaphor. I don't think that's the most essential thing. The point is that I think the idea of linking climate change to jobs and inequality is crucial. It's not a new idea. Um, Pope Francis made that the centerpiece of his encyclical on climate change. Um, many of us have been talking about it, as Dan just said, the idea of green jobs has been out there for a long time. But I think that for me, the crucial part of it is this. You mentioned just a few minutes ago the idea that many people have that the environment is against the economy, that if we protect the environment, we lose jobs. That is one of the biggest and most pernicious lies that the fossil fuel industry has per perpetuated over the last 30 years. Yep. There are study after study after study that show that you can protect the economy, build the economy, and protect the environment at the same time, and then in many cases protecting the, the environment actually generates economy. And we have so many examples of how this is true. We've got, we got to talk about it and hear them. that sense that it was bad for growth, bad for the whole economy, is why George Bush left Kyoto. It's why Donald Trump was able to forswear the whole Paris right. deal. And it's a big, and it's, big lie. And there's this, but there's this funny suspicion, even in our world today, that uh, abusing the environment is part of, contributes to this, this funny sense of a, of a Trump boom. You know, right, but that's, I think, what the 19th century industries want you to think, right? Yes. It was true in the 19th century, right? If you look at the early history of industrialization, you know, terrific air pollution, uh, respiratory disease, industrial accidents. I mean, there's so many ways in which the early history of capitalism industrialization was bad for the economy, it was bad for public health, it's bad for worker safety. But that really changed in the 20th century, and I mm. think we haven't done a good enough job of telling that narrative, explaining how it changed and how sensible regulation enabled us to protect the environment, to protect worker safety, to generate jobs and protect the environment at the same time. We've got time when we come back for you to educate us some. Coming up, a bit, just a taste of the FDR salesmanship around his New Deal in the 1930s. This is Open Source. 
Speaking of the old New Deal in public art on top of infrastructure, 1941, in fact, was a moment in Roosevelt time for the U.S. government to hire the folk music star Woody Guthrie to write a song and sing it about the Columbia River in the state of Washington and promote a hydroelectric grid for the Northwest. 30 million horsepower wasting to the sea. A tremendous force for good or for evil. So the mighty Columbia flings a challenge to a nation, daring it to show that our democracy has the vitality to develop a great river for all its values, for all its people. Uncle Sam, he took the challenge in the year of 33 for the farmers and the workers and for all humanity. Now, River, you can ramble where the sun sets in the sea, but while you're rambling, River, you can do some work for me. Roll, Columbia, won't you roll, roll, roll. roll, roll <laughs> Go, Woody. Uh, damming the Columbia River would not be the same cell today, and it might not be considered wise, but wouldn't it be something to recover some of that confidence, Dan Schrag? Yeah, I think... I, I, I um. I think we have to start thinking about big projects like that, you know. Um, and, and I've got to say, there's a lot of wind at our backs. Here in Massachusetts, I think many of us remember just not so long ago, a few years ago, we were debating Cape Wind, which was this big offshore wind project in Nantucket Sound. Uh, and the dirty little secret is that Ted Kennedy was again it. That's right. Because it was and his front yard. That, and, and we were talking about people who didn't like the look of windmills. But the there was some unpleasant facts about that project. The cost of that electricity was over 20 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, and that was more than the residential cost of electricity. And that was wholesale cost that the utility, that the grid was buying the electricity for. Um, today, we just recently have an 800 megawatt offshore wind program, the, the vineyard wind uh, field, that has a cost of six and a half cents a kilowatt hour. Mm. It's, you know, just a few years later, the price of offshore wind has collapsed. And that's really exciting. So suddenly we can build offshore wind in Massachusetts. We're going to have the same debates about looking at windmills, but the cost is a third as much. And you know what? Nobody's fighting it as much. It's very interesting. What's a big project that's, if not shovel-ready, attracted to you? Um, I, I think there's so many of them that are that are obvious. I think offshore wind in Massachusetts is one. I think, frankly, the transmission that uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden really wanted to build, the, the grid system that will prepare the way for the kind of um, uh, the, the infrastructure that's needed for massive wind and solar. Mm. Um, uh, new wind projects in the Midwest, in Iowa, are costing less than two cents a kilowatt hour. Unbelievable. So, so the price is suddenly, the wind is at our backs in terms of the cost. Um, and we frankly have a lot of work to do just to get the numbers up to the point where we now can tackle the really hard parts of the problem. You know, well, well, the hard parts of the problem come into, you know, displacing oil from our economy. You know, we've been talking about the oil companies as if they're all the fossil fuel. The reality is oil is mostly used for transportation and for automobiles. That's us. And and the reality is to, to fix the oil problem, we need electric cars or the equivalent to become economically competitive. And we're still a long way from that. There's progress. 
you know, a lot of exciting things. I was just looking at the Audi e-tron, which mm-hmm. looks like the equivalent of a Q3 or a Q5. It looks like a beautiful car, but it's $75,000. Mm. That's good. You know, it's great that more car companies are bringing electric cars to market. I've been no car for five years now, and it's heaven. Uh, Naomi, I want to hear your notion of a green jobs and a green jobs program that could cut through what you were just speaking about. The the notion that uh, environmentalism is is bad for us. It's medicine, harsh medicine. I think what, what Dan just said about the grid is really important. And when I give public talks and people ask me about solutions, I often say, well, I need to speak now about something really sexy. It's grid integration. You know, we, we have to start <laughs> talking about things that most of us haven't thought of as being, you know, our issues, right? But as Dan said, one of the keys to being able to maximize our use of renewable energies is to have an integrated grid. And we have lots of good studies on this now as well. Well, ask yourself the question, who built the first federal grid it was the federal government, right? Mm. Before rural electrification, we had electricity in cities. The private sector had done a very good job in electrifying New York and Chicago and St. Louis, but it had done a very poor job in bringing electricity to rural areas because the economy simply didn't pay. Mm. And the federal government stepped in because the federal government said, because people believed, that electricity was a right, that everyone needed it, that farmers needed it, if anything more than urbanites. And they made the case, FDR and David Lilienthal and others uh, made the case for why this was an appropriate thing for the federal government to do. And the private sector had had its opportunity and had frankly failed. So I think there's a similar story to be told now. We need to build the electricity grid of the 21st century. I agree, and there's a lot of... It's clearly a federal function, and it will generate jobs, and it will make it much, much easier for people to take advantage of solar and wind across the country. I I totally agree with you, Naomi, and I think one of the challenges is that all politics are local at some level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, here in Massachusetts, there's a huge amount of hydropower, you know, like the Columbia River, but it's up in Canada. It's the Quebec hydro that is, Mm. there's huge potential up there. What's the problem? Bringing it down to Boston and to all of Massachusetts? And the answer is New Hampshire and Vermont. They don't want to have the transmission lines running through them. And running them underground is too expensive. So there are are still real challenges there. Um, For example, why don't we have a high-speed train between New York and Boston? Using 1970s French technology, that should be a 45-minute trip. And mm. the answer is because we can't get straight tracks through Connecticut. Um, it's, 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 there's real politics there, and they're not easy problems. Oh, I, no, I agree completely. But I think, again, if we get back to FDR and think about, you know, Woody Guthrie, part of the reason these things were able to be done in the 1930s was because people had a vision and they told a story, a persuasive story of how it could happen. Now, obviously, the world is different now. It's more built up. Uh, there's different challenges than there were in the 1930s. But I think the point, getting back to our original theme of the Green New Deal, it's really about leadership. It's about vision. It's about how you persuade people that, yes, there will be some sacrifice, but it will also pay off. And And I think that's that's really the key to me. I I agree. And that word sacrifice, Naomi, I think you hit it on the head. I I think that word sacrifice is a really important one. We remember that, you know, in World War II, FDR asked the nation to do the most extraordinary level of sacrifice for the war effort. And we did, in some ways, the impossible in terms of the number of airplanes and ships and tanks and artillery units. Um, We turned our entire 
uh, industrial capacity, which was about 25% of our economy at the time, um, over to working World War II, that involved incredible sacrifice. Today, I mean, could you imagine putting 35% of our GDP towards a problem like that? It would be unthinkable. Um, and yet, uh, that was the kind of sacrifice that regular people were willing to bear in the 1940s. Yeah, I don't know if we're ready for a war footing exactly yet, but I also think it's it's about harnessing panic. Everybody I know, I mean, they've heard Jim Hansen, it's game over. And even Bill McKibben, cheerful dude that he is, is, is writing his next book on, uh, you know, has the human game begun to play itself out. And suddenly I, there is an, there's a different kind of activism. I, I'm, I think that's a very dangerous path. I've got to yeah, say, John went down on this. I, I, I think panic, <laughs> yeah. first of all, I think panic is a short-lived response. It's a fight-or-flight yeah. response. And I think it's a, it's, it can be very helpful in some situations. But that's not what we need for climate change. Even with the most incredible political will, fixing climate change globally, even domestically, it's going to take decades. It's the reality of the of the scale of the problem, and and so this isn't a sprint. It is a marathon, and so I, I don't think the panic appealing to the public to panic it, it is necessarily going to get us where we want to go. Interesting. Yeah, and I agree. I don't think panic is is ever really the right response to any problem. But again, if we think about how do we overcome big problems in our personal lives, in our institutional lives, in our national lives, it's always about leadership, right? And if you ask yourself the question, what made Lincoln a great leader? What made George Washington a great leader? What made FDR a great leader? It, and even other people who maybe aren't my heroes, but Ronald Reagan, for example, they're all people who had vision. And remember, if we think about President George H.W. Bush, who in many ways was a good man, but what was his biggest failing? It was the vision thing, right? Remember that? Of course. Great leaders have vision, and great leaders find a way to create a positive picture of how we respond, even to a really negative challenge. So think about the Great Depression. Think about World War II. Nobody would say that the attack on Pearl Harbor was a happy day in American history, and yet FDR was able to use it to mobilize the American people and to say, we have a challenge and we're going to live up to it, and America will be a better and stronger place as a result. And I think that's the idea that the Green New Deal is trying to tap into. So it's not to say we have to panic, Mm. nor is it to say that this will be easy, because winning World War II was not, but it is to say that it can be done. I, I think there's an interesting tension. Yeah, the, the, Naomi, I agree completely. I think the, there's an interesting tension, which is depending on who's talking about the Green New Deal, it, it, it more or less rests on government action and government responsibility. You were talking about government responsibility for the grid, but some people in the in the movement are talking about government responsibility for the entire energy system, and. And, and what's interesting is there an interesting tension there because um, technically we don't know all the answers right now. We actually depend on a huge mm. amount of innovation that's going to happen over the next several decades to help us figure out this problem, whether right. it's well, in battery technology or, yeah. or electric car technology or anything else. And so the fact is this is the tension because, because capitalism and competition – in the market is is one of the best forces of innovation we've seen. And yet, some people point to that as the problem. And it's this very interesting tension there. Sooner or later, we, we, we come to Albert Einstein's line. It's funny now that it, it didn't stop the nuclear arms race in the Cold War and since. 
But the warning gives you shivers, again, in climate time. It was 1946, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that Einstein said, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything, save our modes of thinking. And we thus drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. That's beginning to sound descriptive of where we're at in the climate, no? Well, yes and no. People always quote Einstein on that. But, of course, the reality is we actually didn't obliterate ourselves. Now, whether that and we didn't stop, the, <laughs> um, stop the trying either. Case, but the worst-case scenario of nuclear annihilation actually didn't happen. And so I Yet. don't know if we can take comfort in that or not, since we certainly came awfully close to some pretty bad scenarios. But... I, I think if I could just say something more about what Dan just said, that's exactly why I think the Green Apollo Project is actually a better metaphor, because yes. I don't think what we want is a complete government takeover of the economy. And I think that if we were say that we did, that would tap into all of the worst fears of our Republican colleagues and various other people around the country. Um, and there's no reason to do that, because as Dan said, we know that the private sector can be very effective, particularly when you have the right regulatory structure and when you have the right incentives. And so it's really, to me, about getting the incentives right. Right now we have tremendous incentives to continue using fossil fuels and to continue being incredibly wasteful, uh, whereas we could shift those incentives. And as the California example shows, with the right political leadership, it's not that hard to shift the incentives. I think and that's I exactly did, right. I think and so I think that's really what we're, what, what, we're trying to talk but, about. But, now. you know, what's you know hard, we're shifting the them current, in the wrong directions, right? What's the most important part of the California example? I, th I think it's just creating the market for innovation. The idea that, you know, companies that have ideas for electricity storage or for low-carbon fuels or anything can actually find a reliable, stable market in California. And to me... That is incredibly important as a driver of innovation. And if we that required the California Renewable Portfolio Standard, absolutely. So the point is, but, it required the key policies that made it clear that those markets would be there, and that people who fulfilled those, that demand would would find a place to sell their products. And I, and I also think, though, that I, I mean, first of all, something tragic's happened, which is we're removing the seventy five hundred dollar tax incentive for electric vehicles. If we're really serious about getting off oil. Actually, investing in drawing, bringing the cost down, and encourage and growing the scale of electric vehicles in this country is absolutely critical. There's nothing more important, and we seem to be walking away from that challenge. It's expensive. That that tax incentive cost us about a billion dollars of taxpayer money last year. That seems like a trivial amount of money compared to the scale of the climate problem. So yeah, I, exactly. I'm 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 really. It, that is a tragic mistake that Washington is making and the Trump administration is making right now. But overall, I think there's something interesting, Naomi, that wasn't in Ocasio-Cortez's discussion, that was in very much in President Obama's discussion and Senator Clinton's discussion, which is this. It was the idea that the U.S. was going to innovate, develop technology, and then make money by selling it to the world. Right. It was that international competition thing. We want to has win China, this race. Has China beaten us to that? Well, they've beaten us certainly in the solar panel business. You know, Germany, this was very much part of the energy vendor when, when Germany started investing heavily in wind and solar. Part of the justification internally was that German solar companies were going to sell their products to the world after the German taxpayers had funded their growth. It turns out that was a bad idea for them. The Chinese companies 
eat them for lunch. And now, they, yeah, I think they, it was Bill Bill McKibben's point that Germany hesitated, and and Japan figured it out. Well, and get to the market I, first. I think the sense of competition, for example, in electric vehicles. You know, China has 20 different electric vehicle companies that are in process. And it may very well be that the inexpensive, affordable, competitive electric vehicle comes from China, not from Detroit um, uh, or, or, you know, uh, Alabama or wherever the cars are made here in the U.S. today. I think I think uh, I think that's really important. And it's interesting how that hasn't been part of the discussion, that there hasn't right, been this kind of nationalism. What, yeah, no, I think you're right. But here's one thing that I think is really important to add to the mix here, is that sometimes when people talk about subsidies for renewable, they speak as if the existing energy system was not also subsidized. And in fact, what we know is that historically and to the present day, there have been massive subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Some of those subsidies may have made sense or been understandable back in the 1920s, but they don't make any sense anymore. So part of this is about shifting the subsidy structure, the tax incentive structure, phasing out the subsidies for fossil fuels, and then making selective and strategic investments in the key parts of the economy. And I think I, you're absolutely right I, about that. I, I, I think we're right, but I think we're all getting a little too wonkish, maybe. I think you're exactly well, maybe, right, Naomi. But, 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 but in some ways, and that may be the problem. I, I agree with you about the Apollo project in some ways, but you know what? Again, come back to what was so brilliant about what Ocasio-Cortez did, which was, again, blend, I, I think by itself, the green agenda doesn't it doesn't seem to have been able to appeal to people. People have tried. Before we're done, I want both of you to say, where do you get your best information? Who's the best reporter on this evolving story, the story of 2019, in a word or a name? Naomi? Sorry, I, I get my information from the archives. <laughs> Interesting. Easy for a history Dan to Trag. say. Well, I'm a geologist, so I could go deeper back in time. <laughs> Actually, Naomi's a geologist, too. She she uh, she has yeah. that background, too. But but um, um, I want to say, um, I, I, I trust the New York Times science team enormously. Interesting. i got to read it more closely. Thank you, Dan Schrag. Thank you, Naomi Reskies. And Bill McKibben, too. Our show this week was produced by an all-green team of producers Connor Gillies and Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, the engineer George Hicks. Mary McGrath is continually rebuilding our infrastructure. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source.